Ideally, yeah, if there's a band of two people who went their own ways. Uh, White Stripes? Yeah, I, I don't know. Shakademus and Pliers? <laughs> I don't know who they are. <laughs> Honest Andy's Discount Moon Show! Hello and welcome to Honest Andy's Discount Moon Show, the podcast talking about all things moon related. We're recording this on the 9th of March 2021. On the show we are going to be talking about moon news, where we'll be talking about how the moon has a tail. We'll be doing foreign moon news. We'll be talking about the moons of Mars, more theories around their origins, the moons of Jupiter and how they'll be occulting and eclipsing each other during this season. We'll be talking about a pre-covery of a Jovian moon. I'll talk more about that in a bit. And more theories about Pluto's moons. And of course, we'll be doing And the Next Moon Is and some Prime Moonisters questions. And if you need reminding, my name is Andy. I'm the self-appointed moon expert. And to keep me in check and to ask the everyman questions, here is Rick. Hello, Rick. How are you? Hello, Andy. I'm all right. Better than last time. Last episode, I think I had long COVID, so I sounded as though I was stoned. Um, (laughs) (laughs) I wasn't stoned. I was just very tired, I think. So uh, hopefully I'm fine now. But if you're thinking, oh, there's, he sounds a bit tired, that guy, that's just normal. You're sounding more chipper, but you, yeah. yeah, when editing this, I was like, I'm going to have to turn you up, Rick. You, you're really quiet. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's normal. That's just problems with my microphone every week. I've spent uh, 50 quid on a new microphone and that's still not working. So uh, I don't know. When we can meet up again, I will do that thing where we swap microphones and do every sort of permutation combination of recording devices so we can actually uh, see what's going on. Oh, it's like figuring out, why is my screen green? Is it a cable? So then you try all the different cables. Is it my computer? So then you update all the drivers. Yeah, uh, yeah we'll do the swapping of cables. Yes, I'm glad that you sound better. Uh, what have you been up to and keeping busy with? Uh, this month I've gone back to me programming language. Whee! Whee! That's it. I, I probably won't talk about it again. Uh, so, so, oh, it's been a while actually. So it was. I, I'm making my own programming language. So that's that was this month. What have you been up to? So I've managed to get another video out. I swear they're getting longer and longer between the videos and that's not intentional. What I wanted to do with this one was just make a simple two minute video about the moon of Saturn. But while doing the research, it was like, oh, actually, here's a good example of how I can explain a concept. And that's why it turned into a five minute long video as opposed to a two minute video about how to determine if a moon came from an explosion. And you do that by looking at the light reflected off it and anything else in a similar orbital plane. Ah, yes. Was that the one that I commented on the script on? I think so, yeah. you Because you yeah. said you wanted to have a hand in reviewing some of the scripts, so I sent you that one and you, you threw in your two cents. <laughs> that was it, because I, I was um, watching it, because there's a big gap between reviewing the script and when it actually comes out, which inevitably I forget. Because <laughs> um, I, I have nothing to do with the development process whatsoever, and I've got my own life to get on with. Yes, but uh, yeah, it came out, and I was like, "This, this sounds good. This sounds as though he's actually explaining it to me." I was like, "Oh, hang on, it's 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 the one I've I've written in my sort of report writing language." So there we go. <laughs> uh, I was like, "Oh, this is my own moon video." Well, I didn't take your words verbatim, but no. I took some of your suggestions of emphasize this point. Reiterate this to have her in the point, which worked quite nicely. Yeah, that was it. I think I did the the question-answer format of, so, why does this work? 
well, let me tell it, or whatever it was. So yeah. That, that was quite, I was like, oh, okay, good. The first moon video I've understood. Oh, thanks. <laughs> but yeah, the next video uh, I'm currently working on is one that I actually recorded at Christmas, and it's going to be called The Drunken Moon. And <laughs> what I did... Sounds great. Or I recorded it drunk. You forget how loud you are when you're drunk, so all the sound is blared. So prepare your ears for this. So it sounds like this. And that was me talking really close into the mic. You won't have picked that up, Rick. But it yeah. basically the whole video has had to have been turned down. <laughs> it just sounds awful, but quite funny. But I have <laughs> it was ten minutes and I've managed to salvage three out of it. Is it occasionally just halfway through you start weeping and say, you know, I can't believe the bus services don't work as they used to and I used to know this guy called Joe. <laughs> Uh, he was a best mate and he saved a headshot and he, and he just like went off on one. Uh, not that bad, but I did spend a good five minutes talking about how the angle of the moon is not what you think it is, contradicting myself <laughs> several times and ultimately getting to the wrong conclusion. <laughs> that sounds great. I'm not going to put the whole thing in, but I'm going to fade it out and just put in snippets occasionally. <laughs> Are you going to like say I recorded this drunk. Yes, yeah, absolutely. The preamble will be right drunk, edit sober, which will be explained in the video. <laughs> but I'm hoping to get that out by the end of the month. But these things take a lot of time and I'm actually doing some 3D animating for it, which is only for like the first three seconds of the video, but it's going to be a useful skill to have when I'm talking about more complicated orbits and I can actually simulate them in a 3D environment. Oh, that's great. It'll take a bit more time, but some new animation techniques will come out of it. What uh, program are you using for 3D animation? Uh, it's one called Blender. It's pretty powerful. To just do a simple moving a box from A to B, I had to watch a lot of tutorials on how to do it because you think I'm just moving it from A to B but all of the points are like hidden in so many sub layers it's like okay I don't know where to start so you've got the tutorials online which are very helpful yeah I remember using Blender about 10 years ago and I was so happy when I managed to draw a, a cylinder <laughs> <laughs> it was like you're going to be annoyed that they come out of the box now. All oh, right, yeah. Back in my day, it was like, yeah. Was it? Was the command, ex you draw a circle, then you extrude it? I yeah, that was it. Yeah. And like to make a wire, you make a, a cylinder really, really thin and really long. Yeah, that was it. That's burnt in my mind now. That must have taken so long to learn to extrude, as it were. I, I sympathise you with using Blender. It's more intuitive than it was, but still a complex <laughs> bit of kit. Yeah, bloody powerful. It's like a chainsaw or something. It's like you could do a lot of damage with it, but getting it started was a nightmare. <laughs> Good metaphor. Uh, but you'll see the results of my efforts, hopefully in the next few weeks. But in the meantime, we've got a podcast to record, so let's crack on with the show. So the first bit of moon news we have is actually not to do with moons at all, but a bit of local space news uh, about a meteorite that fell to Earth over the UK and was actually seen over our shared county of Gloucestershire and landed in Winchcombe which is a town just at the north of the county. It's the first meteorite to have been collected, discovered, 
picked up from the earth in the UK in the last 30 years, which is quite something. Yeah, rare event. Uh, I did like the dropping in on Winchcombe, because the things I know about Winchcombe are uh, it's got a very narrow street that's always clogged with cars, because you can only get one car through at a time. And uh, so, yeah, if that meteorite landed on the street, that there'd be absolute <laughs> outrage. <laughs> I know nothing about Winchcombe. It landed on some fella's driveway, or I think he called the authorities and they said, okay, here's what you've got to do. To, or not the authorities, called some kind of university and they put them through to the right department and someone came out. Andy, I think I saw this on um, telly this morning. Basically, scientists went round door to door saying, can we come and look at your garden? And, oh, really? Yeah. Um, so I might do that when I want to nick a lawnmower or something. Just go, <laughs> go around saying I'm a scientist. <laughs> Hello, Space Rock Agency. Can you tell me which one of your back doors is the weakest? People in Winchcombe won't mind. I can't help but feel that I had a slight hand in this, because the local paper actually interviewed me about this fireball that was seen over over the county. I say fireball, it was just a meteorite that happened to break up and therefore shine a bit of a light. And they called me just... Asking for a bit of information because, you know, I'm fairly aware of... You're now on their list, aren't you? They're kind of on their list because I'm fairly scientific and know a bit about astronomy. So if you have basic questions, I can answer them. I'm not going to be able to give you earth-shattering insights, but I can answer the questions about meteorites and asteroids and whatnot, where they might have come from. So chatting to the journalists, I happen to mention, like, oh yeah, if you find something and you think it's a meteorite, you can always send it off to get tested, or you can get in contact with someone, and then just talked a bit more about the asteroids and meteorites and the difference between the two. And then, when it was published, the headline was, Local scientist urges you to get rocks tested. And it just (laughs) made me sound like a complete and utter nut. (laughs) Like, I have a mandate or a manifesto for you to go out and test your rocks. Yeah, quite right. You did look like a nutter on that, with the cheesy cheesy grin and Thunderbirds mug. It was. I uh, love that mug. Yeah, I mean, it's good, but it's just like, <laughs> no, you're a local scientist, you wear a white coat, and you hold a Bunsen burner, or you have a telescope as your astronomer. So it, it was the sort of, it's an amateur scientist. Yes, although I, I'll, I'll take the title scientist, I'm fine with that. Yeah. And it, I just imagine people just going to their drives and picking up gravel and sending it off for testing because the scientists told them. <laughs> is this a rock? Not, is it a meteorite? Just, is it a rock? Yes. Yeah. Yes, it is. Here's a bag of bought in B&Q. Are these rocks? Yeah, that, that was basically what I, I'm expecting to happen because of this um, newspaper article. Thankfully, they, they got your name wrong. Yes, they did. <laughs> so and I'm not gonna, I'm not, I'm not gonna correct them because it makes me ungoogleable. So I'm fine by that. That's good. Sometimes on the podcast we have very local moon news where we talk about towns named Moon. For once, we're able to t- report on local space news happening in our own back garden. Yeah, that's good. Although technically it's not moon related, so um, Honest Andy's meteorite podcast show will get a bit annoyed. Yes, I, th- I expect the interpodcast war will continue for several more years. Yeah, that Andy Rogers, he's something. So, on to the next proper bit of moon news, and the moon has a tail. Does it now? It does. Really? Like the doggy in the pet shop window? <laughs> yes, it wags when it's happy. Yeah. I don't think it does, Andy. You're not a moon expert anymore. Oh, it's that badge of honour been stripped from me. Well, you've got to prove it's got a tail. Otherwise, that's it. I'm walking off. Okay. Do comets have tails? Oh, yes, they do. But, well, I've looked at the moon. It's pretty circular. What if I tell you the tail is there? It's just invisible and we cannot see it. 
<laughs> I'm not falling for that one. <laughs> but the I get the Emperor's New Tale. Yeah. What if I told you there's another moon? It's also invisible and you can't test it. Uh, <laughs> no, I, I'm guessing this one's leading to some sort of scientific, oh, actually, there's an invisible ion radiation thing or something. So it's actually sodium dust. It's debris from lots and lots of tiny, tiny meteorite impacts because the moon gets bombarded by 2,800 kilograms of space stuff every day. So that is going to kick up dust. It doesn't get trapped in the moon's atmosphere because the moon doesn't have an atmosphere. So it escapes into space. And when it gets into space, the photons from the sun, so basically the solar wind, will push them away in the direction facing away from the sun. So if you hold up two fists in front of you, your left one is the sun, the right one is the moon, you look towards your right fist and you'd see a tail of debris coming off it from the direction of the sun. And because of this, the direction of this tail is always facing away from the sun. So sometimes the earth gets caught in this tail because remember the moon goes around the earth and so at some point the moon is going to be between earth and the sun and therefore the particles being blown away from the moon are going to come in our direction so we will sometimes get caught in this tail of the moon this tail of sodium atoms that are thrown up into space from these many many meteor impacts that hit the moon every single day and we don't see it or well i guess we don't see it but as in are there scientists collecting the sodium or is it just so such a small amount so we won't see it because of how faint it is but it can be detected and it has been detected multiple times. The first time it was discovered was purely by accident because scientists were observing the skies for Aurora and you know the Leonard, Leonard meteor showers? You know those, oh, yeah. like, they'll go like, oh, it's the, it's the Pleiades meteor shower this year or, the, but there's one called the Leonids, happens every year. And what happens is when they, they go overhead, they'll interact with the Earth's atmosphere, they'll burn up and they'll strip off some of the sodium. So what they'll do is they'll observe these and do some readings and detection of how much sodium has come off. And from that, you can infer, oh, how much, what is this meteorite made of? Is it part of the Leonid meteor shower? Yes, it is because it matches the debris that came off it. But after the meteor shower happened, three days later, there was still this cloud of sodium lingering in the field of view of these telescopes. And it shouldn't have been there, but this was also in the same position as the moon. So they thought, oh, hang on, is this trail of sodium coming from the moon? And they waited another month for it to be in the same position, and lo and behold, it was. So they did some more measurements, and that's what this news has been, that more studies have been done on the moon's tail. Excellent. This makes perfect sense to me because I've said in videos of moons of Saturn that they contribute to Saturn's rings like the tiny moon of Atlas, the tiny moon of Pallini, in fact all of the Alcyonides, all those three tiny little moons that are barely 20 kilometers across, they all have a ring of their own and that's from tiny little impacts hitting these moons, kicking off dust and that dust goes into a ring around it. So instead of getting thrown off into space, the debris around Saturn creates a little ring around it because it has this nice stable gravitational field and a nice stable path. So the moon, it doesn't have a ring, but it has a tail, so to speak. So yeah, I'm guessing the, the ones around Saturn don't get all their dust blown away because they're further away from the sun. So the sort of wind is less. Precisely. Marvellous. I've learned something. You have learned something. <laughs> Finally. Um, so on, on the converse side, if the sun was uh, a bit less windy, would our moon have a ring around it 
And would Earth have a ring around it? Oh, yes, I think is the answer to that. It would. If, uh, if the sun was less windy, <laughs> we'd probably be dead because, uh, or life wouldn't have had the chance to exist because it wouldn't be as warm because it's charged particles that are pushing and interacting with the sodium atoms that are causing them to like create this tail. But with a weaker wind, the tail wouldn't be as long because it's it, this tail goes for 800,000 kilometers, by the way. The moon is only just shy of 400,000 kilometers from Earth, so it's double the distance between the Earth and the moon that this tail goes out into space. So if the wind was less, this tail would probably get caught in Earth's gravitational field and probably make a nice little ring around it. So yeah, I think you're right. Oh, cool. Uh, does this discovery of the tail of all the sodium atoms coming off the moon have any practical applications? Can we, can we, can we cure cancer or... Uh... So you read the same article that I did because it's in the show notes. And I love, I, I love this quote as well because they asked the leader author of the paper, okay, does this discovery have any practical applications? And he went, probably not. <laughs> That's what you get for asking a scientist and not a PR person. <laughs> yes, they're all very self-deprecating. Yeah, when this sort of goes on to cure cancer and dementia and Alzheimer's and everything, then he'll finally admit there was a practical <laughs> application. Ah, oh, there we go. The answer was moon tails all along. Yeah. Yeah, and the article that uh, features this quote came from a New York Times article, which features a really, really good video that highlights this tale and the direction of it and how it's always facing away from the sun. And it's a nice little visualization. So I'll include a link in the show notes. And if you're watching this on YouTube, you'll see it now. In summary, the moon has a tail caused by meteor impacts and it goes for 800,000 kilometers, but you can't see it because you don't have a fancy telescope. Sorry. And now on to foreign moon news, where we talk about moons belonging to other planets that aren't Earth. And we're going to talk about our nearest neighbour, think nearest neighbour. We're going to talk about our red neighbour, Mars, and the two moons of Mars, Phobos and Deimos, in kind of a double whammy of moon news for these two, because the two articles that are similar, it's actually a nice joining of the two, because the first article I want to talk about, or first bit of moon news, is the surface of Phobos could give us an insight into the history of Mars's atmosphere. And the reason being is because like our own moon, Phobos is tidally locked with Mars. So the same side of Phobos is always facing Mars. You know, when you stand up, look at the moon, it's always the same face. The man on the moon is looking at you. It's always that same view. That's because the moon is tidally locked with Earth, so we always see the same face. It's the same on Phobos. And because of this, one side of Phobos, the near-facing side, is going to have absorbed all of the particles from Mars's atmosphere. I say all of the particles, sorry. A lot of particles from Mars's atmosphere. <laughs> <laughs> it hasn't just other side of the planet suddenly gone, oh, where are you going, fella? Come here. Yeah. Stick you on me. Some sort of massive magnet or something. Uh, not quite. No, it's just happened to capture the Martian atmosphere as it's orbited by. So it's actually called atmosphere escape, I think is the term, where particles just near the top of the atmosphere do escape, but they're able to be regenerated based on what's on the planet. This didn't happen on Mars. 
because it had a thicker atmosphere, but it is now thinner. And they were saying that Mars once had an atmosphere thick enough to support liquid water on its surface, but today it's less than 1% as dense as Earth's atmosphere. So something happened to Mars's atmosphere and the surface of Phobos could give us an insight to this because as the Martian atmosphere escaped from the planet, it will have had to have passed through the surface of Phobos and that will have captured some of these particles as it escaped. So if we take a sample of the surface, we can learn a bit about the Martian atmosphere, especially if you take one of the far side, because then you can go what particles are on the near side and what particles are on the far side and what is present on the near side will probably have been in the Martian atmosphere. What's missing on the far side will just give you a sample of what Phobos is without the Martian atmosphere. So you have a nice kind of like, uh, is it called like a test sample, clean sample? Sort of before uh, and after. Yeah, pretty much like, oh, it's not calibration. It's like a calibration of, all right, this is what the soil is with the, without atmosphere. This is what it is with atmosphere. What's in that soil? Like minus one from the other, that's what was in the atmosphere. Hello, future Andy here. The word that that idiot past Andy was trying to figure out was control, a control sample. The far side of Phobos would serve as a control sample compared to the near side, which contains the atmosphere particles. Therefore, you have a control, compare it to the one that contains the atmosphere particles. Oh, it was bugging me. Sorry about that. So on the, on the far side, if they pick up, you know, two kilograms of uh, carbon and nitrogen, and on the near side, if they pick up two kilograms of carbon, nitrogen, and a clown costume, they know that a clown costume was in the atmosphere of Mars. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and it's been blown across. Right, got you. I may have confused the periodic table with arbitrary objects. <laughs> yeah, CL is chlorine, not clown. <laughs> okay, right. <laughs> you get 100 points on pointless for that. But this kind of ties in nicely to the next article that I'd like to talk about, which again is to do with the moons of Mars. And do you remember a few podcasts ago, I talked about a theory that had been proposed how the moons of Mars are actually generational. So these are probably third or fourth generational moons, as in there once was a moon, but it got blown up and then it reformed from the debris over time. And then this moon blew up again. So then you have another generation of moons. So Phobos and Deimos could be generational moons coming back from a bigger moon or bigger moons that underwent some kind of explosion or some kind of big impact that tore them apart and then these moons formed from them over the course of billions of years. Well, a new theory has kind of been put forward that adds more evidence for this. And it's looking at the orbits of Phobos and Deimos, because if you remember, Phobos is getting closer to Mars and Deimos is getting further away. They kind of looked at what their current trajectories are now, looked at what the dynamics of these moons are, the gravitational effect of Mars, and kind of reversed it all and used a computer simulation to go back in time and see what their orbits were. And it turns out that at one point, the orbits of Phobos and Deimos will have crossed paths which indicates they were in the same place at the same time, much like a bigger moon that was blown apart. Uh, sorry, so some scientists got the Phobos and Deimos where they are now and then rewound the tape on a computer, as it were, and kept rewinding until they say, oh, hang on, they're in the same place. 
That's exactly the analogy I was thinking of in my head. Uh, yeah, just rewinding the tape. But the question is, when did this happen? Because obviously it had to have happened after Mars formed and had to have formed into a planet. So did this proto-big moon that Phobos and Deimos formed from form at the same time as Mars? Did it happen significantly after? Is that moon a second generation moon that was then blown up into Phobos and Deimos? Well, the time period they have of when this explosion happened was 2.7 billion years ago to 1 billion years ago. So a gap of 1.7 billion years. It's a bit of a window. I mean, I've had fridge deliveries that want me to stay in all day. I think that's, that's a bit vague, but I think 1.7 billion years, that's the biggest time window of uncertainty I've got so far. So that that's winning. If yeah. It, if someone said, can you stay in for a fridge between 1 and 2.7 billion years from now? No, I'm cancelling that fridge. <laughs> <laughs> I know the astronomical timescales talk in billions, and it's quite abstract. The age of the universe is apparently 14 and a half billion years ago, and the solar system is four and a half billion years ago. So a time gap of 1.7 billion years ago is a third of the age of the solar system, which is quite quite a big window. Long time to stay in. Yes, but this could be narrowed down. <laughs> I hope so. <laughs> it could be narrowed down to 8.30 to noon. <laughs> That's what I want. I want a, yeah, I want a half hour gap at best. And if they get it 15 minutes late, I want a text. Your lunar impact is only eight stops away. Yeah. Ooh, it. and the asteroid's called Gavin. <laughs> Here's a photo of him smiling. And when, once he turns up and blows the proto-moon apart, he then has to take a photo of the two moons to prove that he's done it. Or misses you entirely, but leaves a note saying, sorry, we missed you. <laughs> We'll, we'll be back in two billion years. <laughs> or, or yeah. please reschedule a devastating impact with your local collection office. <laughs> okay, yeah. But this window of time can be narrowed down if we know what the moons of Phobos and Deimos are made of. Now, there's a pretty good idea by looking at the orbits of them, doing uh, temperature scans on them and looking at like radar images and uh, not radar, like UV and IR images, loads and loads of different studies on them can determine what they are made of. The density of these moons has been calculated to be about two grams per cubic centimetre, so that's less than half the density of Earth, so they're pretty porous. There's lots of kind of like caverns in them, so when I say porous, there's lots of like gaps, but what are these gaps made of? Did they contain ice? Do they contain just air, just empty voids? Not a lot is known about the actual material until we do a sample return mission, and then we can get far more conclusive evidence of what Phobos and Deimos are made of, which is what JAXA is planning on doing, JAXA being the Japanese space agency. They're gonna do a sample return mission to Phobos, and I think Deimos as well. And if we can learn more about what Phobos is made of, that then we can learn more about the dynamics of it. It's like, okay, well, it's this porous, this dense, it has this weight, it moves at this speed, and it just gives us more information. It's like that famous Dick Cheney speech of known knowns, known unknowns, and unknown unknowns. Well, we have a lot of known unknowns about Phobos, it's just finding the unknowns, answering those questions, putting in more pieces of the puzzle, and that will give us a more definitive time frame of when Phobos and Deimos emerged from this one moon that may have been blown up. 
Again though, this is just a theory. The simulations offer quite a lot of evidence, but until we actually go there and put these theories to the test, we won't have a definitive answer. So that's more evidence then of Phobos and Deimos being one and the same back in the day before they went their own ways and decided to uh, become a solo act. Yeah, Phobos and Deimos are basically Oasis or the Beatles. Cannes Film Festival, Paris Fashion Week, and now a new exclusive season. That's right, it's the Jovian Moon Mutual Eclipse season 2021. I, I, <laughs> have you lost the plot? So, uh, so uh, what's going on, Andy? So when you look at big planets through a telescope, we know that they have moons, but sometimes they could be quite hard to see. That's because these planets are also on an angle and the moons also orbit on an angle, just like how Earth goes around the sun, but it also rotates on its own axis of about 28 degrees and the moon orbits five degrees to that. So if you're looking at the plane of the solar system, the one that all the planets orbit on, the moons are at really obscure angles. Jupiter's moons, even though they're all pretty uh, centric and circular and along the equator, they too orbit at weird angles. And because Jupiter's on a slight angle, it can be quite hard to see these moons orbit edge on. However, twice every time in Jupiter's orbit, there is a perfect chance where you can see these moons on an edge. So because you have four moons on an angle and we're looking at them on edge, so if you're looking at them on an edge, they're just going from side to side, not in a circle or a slight oval. We're looking at this orbit edge on. Because of this, they will actually eclipse each other. So there's two things. There's eclipsing and occulting each other. Uh, eclipsing is where one completely covers the other with its shadow, so it'll just block it out temporarily as the shadow covers it. And the other is a cultic where it physically blocks the view from us. So you'll have one big moon going in front of another and that will occult it, but then one moon orbiting slightly above another, but casting a shadow that blots out this other moon as well. And we only get to see this once every five years, if you've got a good enough telescope, of course. It sounds like if you're a parent and you've got like four demanding children all wanting attention <laughs> and they're all trying to sort of block each other out. Uh, kind of, yes, as in I'm at the front. No, no, I'm at the front now. Yeah. You get to the back. Yes. Kind of like that. So if you're interested in this and want to know the exact times of what moon will eclipse another at what time and from where, because <laughs> Earth is good, but... We're also at different angles on the planet as well. So you need to see it at exact times. And they are to the minute as well. Like, for example, Io is going to eclipse Europa on the 10th of March. Oh God, I won't get this out in time by then. So I'll tell one that will. Europa will eclipse Io on the 30th of March at 9.30 to 9.35 in the morning. So your telescope has to be ready to go at that time. And you'll see one cross over the other. If you look in the show notes, Rick, and look at the thing that I'm highlighting there. So this is telescope footage of Io eclipsing Ganymede with its shadow. So that's an example of what you'd be seeing. Okay, that, that does look pretty impressive. Riveting uh, podcasting, I know, yeah. <laughs> so I'll, inc I'll include a link to this in the show notes, obviously. I'm going to have to sort of, yeah, sort of explain it. Uh, it's like a ping pong ball going in front of a snooker ball, particularly the yellow snooker ball, all in black and white on a very fuzzy camera. But you see the shadow of... Yeah one going in front of the other. That's it. And according to the time stamp in the top left, this whole sequence took about an hour, but it's been sped up to about five seconds. Yes. Again, I urge you to look at the GIF. 
<laughs> but that was a good description. I was going to say, does my my uh, verbal picture not paint a thousand words? Uh, balls moving in front of each other. Yeah, I, I think yes. Go and look at the GIF. But if you're a stargazer and have a powerful enough telescope to witness this, it sounds like it's quite an incredible thing to actually not only witness, but actually achieve in witnessing. Like the amount of setup and precision you would need in order to witness this and the time frames like the windows of like eight minutes to just see this this has to be right otherwise i'm going to miss it and i can't try again for this specific event for another five years <laughs> i imagine there'd be quite a lot of pressure yeah it's like if the olympics was five minutes long uh, so, and you... <laughs> and only one person had to do every event they had to do yeah. the triathlon the javelin gymnastics and bmx yeah and if you miss it that's it oh no i overslept or if there's a cloud <laughs> in the way that's it <laughs> oh yeah yeah of course that that would screw it up wouldn't it if you have a telescope there's links to the show notes if you're interested in trying this uh, and i'll post the links to the tables that have all the times of what is eclipsing what and when so on to a bit more Jovian moon news and N3 has done it again and they have actually had their pre-covery images of Valetudo confirmed and accepted by the MPC which is the Minor Planet Center. Now what is pre-covery you might ask? So Valetudo is a moon of Jupiter and it was discovered in 2016 by Scott S. Shepard, notorious moon spotter. He spotted this moon in images taken in 2016 and it was announced as part of a batch of moons that I was actually the one that helped with the announcement for and part of that batch is some of the ones that I managed to name so I'm going to be a bit smug about that for a second. Thank you very much. But anyway, he found a moon in these images from 2016 but images of that section of the sky or images of the sky around Jupiter have been taken for many years prior to this. So if we look at Valetudo's path around Jupiter, look at an archive of images and go, okay, here is an image that's on Valetudo's path around Jupiter. Will Valetudo have been in that image when it was taken. And because there's hundreds, if not thousands of images, chances are the moon will have been in one of these images, snapped at the right time, but not discovered because it was quite faint. But now that we know the position of Valetudo, and we know that at this time, working backwards, will Valetudo have been in that image at that time? Technically, yes. Let's have a look and see if we can find it. And N3 has gone through these images and found Valetudo in images taken in 2003, 2006 and 2010. So Valetudo appeared three times in these images but was so faint that it couldn't have been spotted. It just kind of went into the background but because N3 is so bloody diligent <laughs> and if you look at some of these images they're, they're in the discord chat uh, and with with N3's permission, I will create GIFs for the video and see if I can host them. I don't know if they'll be in the show notes or not as I'm recording this. I'll ask for permission to include links to Imager to display these, but they are so faint. It does just look like faint background noise, but there is definitely a moon there and there is definitely something moving. 
and the minor planet center thinks so too, which is why this moon has been pre-covered. Hey, are they the official pre-covery people? Or are they sort of a, are they like an agent? You know when you write a book and the official people that publish it, the publishers, but you might get an agent first and they represent you to the publishers. Like you're, you, you don't really talk directly to a publisher. So how does it work in the world of moons? Do you go straight to the moon authorities and say, this is a moon or do you go to a, an intermediary? That is a good question. I actually don't know. I think it's the International Astronomical Union that say if something is a moon or not, but the Minor Planet Center, kind of like the administrators where they will keep track of orbits and they will publish new orbits because obviously gravity of the sun and gravity of the planets will affect positions and instruments are getting more and more accurate. So when something was measured, say in 2003, the orbit might not have been very accurate, but with more refined techniques and more observations, a better, more accurate orbit has been calculated, the Minor Planet Center will look at what these new calculations are, accept them or reject them, and they're kind of like the administrators and that like the people who keep things up to date, so to speak. Uh, and they will accept images if you think you have spotted an asteroid that exists but it's in a slightly new position, you submit this orbit and then they will look at your research, they will look at your evidence and check and accept it and basically it's kind of, I think it's like peer review. This is me making an educated guess. I don't know but that's what I think is going on here. Okay that's brilliant. So do we, is there an official certificate or uh, something that N3 can put on their wall and say there you go I've officially found a moon? Um, well not found but pre-covered oh, yeah. but yes having your results or having your images kind of published in the minor planet center it's like having a paper published in a journal so you can point to something and go i did that and here is the official recognition of it so it's not necessarily a certificate but it's a published scientific log that you could say here is my finding a point to a certain reference and it will show up that's great so you officially go down in history as having done something useful to humanity unlike the rest of us well this is the thing i i feel that n3 has done far more in terms of moon service than i have and should therefore deserve to name at least one moon. So N3, hopefully you did manage to submit some names. I know that um, someone else in the Discord, Drygorich, I think I'm saying your name right, if I'm not, please correct me. They're a champion of moons as well. And I know that they've submitted a lot of names to the Names and Moon contest. So hopefully they'll have had a say as well. Uh, also, thank you Drygorich for pointing a lot of moon news my way. Uh, I do really appreciate that. Thank you for that. So that's what a pre-covery is. And they did actually try to do this with um, a moon of Neptune called Hippocamp, which was discovered in Hubble images, I think in 2012. And then it was named a few years ago and it got the name Hippocamp then. And I made a video about it. There'll be a link to it in the show notes. Hippocamp was discovered by Hubble, but they looked at the old Voyager images to see if Hippocamp was where it should be in those images to try and see, oh, could we pre-cover an image of Hippocamp from photographs taken in the 70s by Voyager? Fortunately, they couldn't find it. So the first images of Hippocamp were found in the ones taken by the Hubble telescope. So that was the pre-covery of Valetudo. So it's like a discovery, but we've already discovered it, but we didn't know we discovered it. So we've recovered an old picture where we should have discovered it and then rediscovered it on that picture. I think the best way of phrasing it would be, we had the evidence all along, but we hadn't spotted it then until someone spotted it much later and we've gone back through the old 
evidence. And lo and behold, it was there all along. The official discovery date was this, but we could have discovered it pre that discovery in this evidence here, hence pre-covery. I think that's very similar to like some excuses the Met Police occasionally give. <laughs> so, I always like talking about the moons of Pluto. I think they're quite fascinating and that they're so far away and we only have so... Can I just stop you there, Andy? Uh, I know Pluto's not a planet, so is it allowed moons? Well, yeah, asteroids can have moons. The asteroid of Ida has a tiny little moon called Dactyl, and that's definitely a moon because it's orbiting a bigger body. So non-planets, dwarf planets in the case of Pluto, can have moons. Uh, Haumea, a dwarf planet, has two moons. Eris has a moon of Dysnomia. There's loads of dwarf planets that have moons. Okay. I think I've, uh, yeah, well, I know I've mentioned this before, but I, I keep forgetting for the purposes of the new listener every episode. So, okay. So, <laughs> being a moon conservative, and I want moons in their rightful place, and they should only belong to planets, uh, I will accept your liberal interpretation that anything can have a moon nowadays. But back in my day, Pluto was a planet. <laughs> It is heading that way where there needs to be a cutoff for what a moon is, but that's uh, we've had this debate many <laughs> yeah, times, yeah. and it'll probably come up again. But right now, I want to talk about the moons of Pluto. So, a few episodes back, we talked about a new theory for the origin of the moons of Pluto, and that it was originally thought that Charon arised from a huge impact on Pluto, along with the other moons that exist in the Plutonian system. However, looking at the dynamics and rewinding the tape and looking at the energy and the dynamics involved, that doesn't quite add up. So what astronomers have done is they have simulated exactly the same thing, but instead of an impact on Pluto, it's an impact on Charon, where they've rewound the tape and everything comes from an impact on Charon. And lo and behold, the moons are where they should be now. So there was a giant impact on Charon from which the moons of Pluto formed, not a giant impact on Pluto. New papers have been published on this where they've simulated things like this. So they've simulated two theories. One is the giant impact model where one collision hit Pluto, made a disk of debris from which all the moons formed, and given the error bars on the graph and all of the errors and mathematics involved, it is plausible that everything ends up where it does. Over the course of a million years, you have the Pluto system. So they tested it, that theory works. And they also tested it with the other one where Pluto and Charon exist. They're happily orbiting one another. And then something hits Charon. They simulate, okay, bunch of debris goes off that. Does it form the moons? Yes, it does. So both of these scenarios work. However, the impact on Charon model is slightly better because the cratering frequency on Pluto and Charon and the early evolution of large solids in the Kuiper belt are consistent with the current estimates. So, unpacking all that, because that's a lot of science. Off the top of my head, I don't know the cratering frequency of the Kuiper belt. I'll be honest. <laughs> um, so, looking at the images taken by New Horizons and how many craters are on both Pluto and Charon, you can go, okay, those have been around for roughly this much time, and therefore 
you can have an upper age. So if you looked at the surface and there was one or two craters, you'd be like, that's quite a young surface because there's not a lot of craters there. If it's utterly covered in craters to the point where one crater impact is overwriting another, you could go, that's quite old. And that's something called crater saturation. So there is something known as the late heavy bombardment. So there's a period in the solar system's history called the late heavy bombardment where there were loads and loads of asteroids that came from the outer solar system to the inner solar system and bombarding everything along the way. So if a surface has lots of craters, you can assume the surface had formed around the time of the late heavy bombardment. So Pluto and Charon have a cratered surface but not super cratered so therefore you can go okay we roughly know the crater frequency of that part of the solar system at that time and Pluto and Charon have the right amount of craters that correspond to that crater frequency for that part of the solar system at that time so therefore the big impact on Charon that formed the other moons happened before this late heavy bombardment and therefore had time to resurface and have more impacts. So it has more craters that happened on top of this big one that caused the moons. Therefore, that is consistent with the current timeline of the solar system. It's not super young. Like this simulation said, oh, the explosion on Charon had to happen in the last 500 million years. That is not consistent with the late heavy bombardment. Therefore, it had to happen at a certain time. And this model predicts or confirms that the impact on Charon happened at the time it should have happened, basically. And the other part that I mentioned, which was uh, early evolution of large solids in the Kuiper Belt, basically just means dwarf planets were made at that time. Okay, that's simpler. I can understand that one. <laughs> <laughs> so early evolution of large solids in the Kuiper Belt. Pluto and Charon are large solids in the Kuiper Belt, and they under... <laughs> that's also what I went to my GP with recently. <laughs> So Pluton and Charon, large solids in the Kuiper belt that underwent the crater frequency that we know about that created the moons of Pluto. Excellent. Have I explained that eloquently well enough or do you need any other clarifications? Well, if I convert it into my uh, man of the people analogy. Um, so you're, you're kind of saying it was originally they thought that something hit Pluto and created Charon. And the other moons. And the other moons. But instead it was something hit Charon and created Pluto. Uh, no, Pluto existed. I'm sorry. Pluto existed already and then Charon got hit. Yeah. Everything else seems to have stayed the same, though, so it's just switching the source. Uh, so the original theory, something hit Pluto, Charon and all the moons were made. Theory one. Theory two, Pluto existed, Charon existed, something hit Charon, all the moons were made. Let's simulate this in a computer. Tap it, tap it, tap. Oh, scenario two is more plausible than simulation one. I'm kind of imagining it's the equivalent of like a DNA test on Jeremy Kyle, where the mothers come in, said, this is my baby, and they do a DNA test, or oh, I want to find out if that bloke is the father. And they do a DNA test, and it's, yeah, well, the bloke is the father. Uh, but it turns out the mother isn't the mother. So there we go. You know, it completely changes <laughs> uh, the who owns the baby. I'm so frustrated you've brought Jeremy Kyle into my lovely Plutonian moon system. You can always edit it out. That, that, that is, oh. I think, how I'll remember it. Oh. Who who owns these moons? We do a, a paternity test with Pluto and Charon. 
And so we're done with the news and now we go on to our recurring feature and the next moon is where we talk about all the moons of the solar system and give a little spotlight to that moon. We've talked about the moons of Mars, we've talked about the inner moons of Jupiter, the Galilean moons and now we're on to the moons of the Himalaya group. This week we are talking about the 12th moon of Jupiter, Pandea. That sounds familiar. It should sound familiar because I have done a little video on it. Well I say I have done a little video on it. I actually teamed up with the Astro Club from Lanavit School near Cornwall who helped name the moon. They were the guys who suggested the name Pandia. That was it. It's all, that, all the kids, wasn't it, that beat you in the contest? Not beat, <laughs> but co-won. <laughs> okay. all, all they did was look at a panda and do a little bit of research into what they could call the moon and submitted it, whereas you know, I'm, I'm the one who actually did the grunt work and made the video and, made, uh, and helped out with the campaign, but I'm not bitter. I'm not bitter <laughs> at all. <laughs> no, I'm, oh, I'm, I'm being... I've got some more salt I can rub in those wounds if you want. <laughs> no, like, I, I think it's wonderful that they got to name it. I, I really do. I, I'm just being facetious. This is a great bit of outreach and it helps the public get involved, especially with the name Saturn's Moon Contest, where, where you could suggest Gallic names. And I think Cornwall has quite a bit of Gallic tradition. Gallic can include Celts and Romans and whatnot because Tarvos, the moon that I made a video about recently, is a Gallic moon and that is named after a bit of Gallo-Roman art discovered in France. So it can be anywhere in Europe that happens to have Gaelic or Gallic heritage. And Cornwall or the area near Lanavit has some stuff to do with giants, so I think they've submitted a name after their local giant, so to speak. But anyway, enough about that contest. What would you like to know about Pandia? Uh, well, it's vital statistics. How big is it? How far away from the planet is it? And what's its orbit? Okay, well, it's a tiny, tiny little moon, only three kilometres in diameter. It's orbiting at about 11.5 million kilometres from Jupiter. Takes 250 days to go around the planet. It does orbit at, at an angle of about 28 degrees, and it's quite an eccentric orbit of 0.18. So if a moon has an orbit that's really close to zero, that means its orbit is very, very circular. Whereas if it's closer to 0.5, that means it's a really strong oval. Like you'd look at it and go, that's practically a line, almost. <laughs> <laughs> the closer to one a number is, the more eccentric it is. So 0.8 is still quite oval. So this moon was discovered in 2017, but wasn't announced immediately. It was announced part of that big batch of moons of 10 moons of Jupiter that were announced in 2018. Although that announcement was a little confusing because it said 12 new moons, even though two moons had been previously announced a couple of years earlier, and I made a video for that one. And then this one came out about like 10 new moons, but you can name five of them. Whereas the Saturn discovery of like 20 new moons, they're like, here's 20 new moons, you can name them all, go. Yeah, they've probably just run out of people that want to name them. They just got so many. Uh, yeah. Response to the competition was huge. They did get many, many, many suggestions. But how many were sort of not moon, moon face? Oh, God, I'm so sick of that joke. Uh, <laughs> there were a lot of illegal entries, so to speak, because they didn't bother to name them after... Uh, follow the rules and name them <laughs> and suggest names that ended in an A or an E or name them after lovers or descendants of Zeus or Jupiter. But they were like, oh, name it the new Ford Focus. It's like, no, you can't do that. There's rules. Just, Justin Bieber. 
Do you want to name someone more current? No. I don't, <laughs> don't really know anyone. I, I, that's not, uh, I'd never really accepted the 90s are finished. That, yes. That article before about the first meteorite landing in the UK in 30 years. It's like, oh, that's a long time. And they said, yeah, the last time a meteorite landed in the UK was 1991. It's like, hang on, no, that was 30 years ago. Oh, wait. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, I was looking at that going, oh, it's uh, one of those old grainy photos or no, videos from a man picking up a meteorite off his allotment. Oh, look, at back in the days of 1990, what, oh, flipping it, I'm old. <laughs> yeah, some of the albums that I quite like uh, from bands that I was into when I was younger, uh, I'll follow them on Facebook and then they'll say something like, oh, yeah, it's the 20th release of this album. Like, I remember buying that. I remember <laughs> buying that. With money I got from a job. Yeah, and it was on vinyl. <laughs> no, it was on CD, which no. is a completely redundant format now because no one has a CD player. I've got one. No, laptops. Now, you're yeah. lucky if they come with a CD drive. I've got a pretty beefy laptop for playing games and also for simulating Universe Sandbox for when we do live shows. Mm. That doesn't have a CD drive. Although I find the, um, the CD drive, you put a CD in, it goes... <sighs> Oh, you don't you don't actually want me to play this, do you? Uh, it was, I mean, legally, legally, I can get data off that CD, but I just really don't want to play it. Whether it's because I'm using Linux and they're just like, oh yeah, whatever. oh, it but absolutely is because you're using Linux. It's like, oh, have you have you checked with the terminal that this is okay? Yeah, uh, but also it's Ubuntu, which is all very free and everything's got to be free and open. And oh, did you know CDs have a proprietary format? Therefore. You don't want that, do you? I just want I just want to put a CD in and let it play music. And then it does, but it does it on the world's most sort of user-unfriendly um, CD player. Windows. Never. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, yes, Pandia. Um, well, I did warn you this was going to happen when we start talking about all the moons, that sometimes there'll be absolutely nothing to say other than it's this big, this far away, this is the orbit, it's named after this... Uh, I suppose this one is more interesting because it was recently discovered in the last few years and it's tiny, three kilometres across, so it's really, really small. Uh, I'd like to say it was discovered using a brand new technique, but it was just a case of uh, let's look at the sky and let's follow the dots. It's not like the Saturn's moons, which I think had a new uh, something called layering technique where you use layers of previous images to kind of like filter out the background stars and really highlight the things that are moving or some moons of Neptune because I'll be doing one about a moon called Seo that had some pretty interesting imaging techniques involved. So I think this one was just a case of let's look at the sky and see what we can see. So unfortunately, <laughs> other than the really, really cutesy name, which is a cute name and a cute story, there's not much to talk about other than it's named after a panda. Okay, brilliant. So here's one. It might be a prime minister's question, or you can answer it now. Okay. So Pandia is three kilometres big. Do you reckon in the future that like millionaires will buy that and just set up their home on it in the same way as they like buy islands nowadays? That's a good question. I don't think so because there really isn't that much to see. It's not like being up on the surface of something like Metis where you have the gorgeous Jovian atmosphere to marvel at. It's really far away. So Jupiter just looks like a dot. It just looks like another star, a bright star, and maybe a bit bigger than the others, but you wouldn't be able to tell it's Jupiter unless you had like some telescope or binoculars. It would be just like camping 
in a quarry. <laughs> it, like, put a luxury home in a quarry, and that's what it might be like. <laughs> so, like, the, one of the reasons why you have these luxury islands is because they're in, like, a really warm, tropical place. The scenery is wonderful. You could go for a walk on the beach. You're secluded. So, you buy a moon, a tiny three-kilometer moon, you're secluded, but what else are you going to do? Yeah, stargaze. But the stars are going to be in a slightly different from how they look on Earth because you've travelled <laughs> to a different distance. Not massively because they're still really far away, but I think the parallax will be off. Yeah, but I'm thinking, you know, why why go to an island when you can just go to your local beach? Like, oh, I, want an, I want an island. I want to keep everyone away. And so surely that mentality will go forward to, like, Oh, I've got my own little planet here. Yeah, that's a fair point. I think that might happen with sections of other moons, like that actually have something on them, like Titan with its mare and Io with its volcanoes. There's something to look at there. But I think these smaller moons, I'm not sure if there is actually that much to do <laughs> other than yeah. I've got a moon. Uh, yeah, so, I mean, there's not much else to do on a desert island, and that's kind of the point. So I'm, I'm wondering if, you know, people who want isolation and million billionaires or trillionaires in the future uh, will just say, look, I want this, uh, you know, three kilometre big sort of moon and it will be mine, legally mine. I own the, it's now a planet because I'm a trillionaire and I can make the laws and it's my own thing. I reckon someone might do that. I think you're correct. I think if there is a way to 100% show that you legally own the moon, people will probably do that. Whether or not they'll set up a holiday home on there, <laughs> like a new show, A Place Away From The Sun, is going <laughs> to pop up off the back of this. <laughs> yeah. That adds another question, actually. So, yeah, if you were to set up on a random moon, you'd kind of need energy because you're not going to just nip out and get some supplies or whatever. Are there moons with, like, good thermals and good energy and stuff? I'm guessing there are, like, better ones, like a volcano planet, or volcano moon is going to be a hell of a lot better than a cold moon where nothing has done anything ever and it's completely dead. Oh god, that's a, that's a topic for another another yeah, episode. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, some planets are going to be better than others for their own source of thermal heating. I mean, quite a lot of moons are thought to have subsurface oceans and therefore if there's liquid, there's something warming that. Well, even if it is a saline ocean, it still hasn't frozen due to the icy cold temperature of space so there is some energy source there so the bigger the moon the more likely you are to have an energy source these smaller space pebbles might have a little bit of heat in the middle of them but really not enough to power anything but this is something that we can explore in a bit more depth in a, either a live show or a future podcast cool yeah i think it will um uh, <laughs> it'll be one where i'll have some follow-on questions like, okay so if on. you have unlimited money then and you could go to a holiday home on a quarry in space would you um, I think there would be million whether I'd do it or not, but I think there'd be millionaires who would just want to get away from Earth, primarily for tax reasons. <laughs> uh, you know what, that would probably be a travel company of digital detoxing, and what better way to get away from the hustle and bustle of terrestrial life than fleeing to a far-off Jovian moon and meditating on the far-off moon of Pandia. Yeah, that, that's what I'm thinking, that it will happen one day, if trends are anything to go by. Oh, if, if there's one thing about trends, they're consistent and never change. And then they'll declare bloody independence from the rest of the... <laughs> Pandia exit. I would like the Mysterons did on the moon. Yeah, we're self-sufficient. <laughs> we can go now. Oh no, 
we've got a trade. Yeah, if you want to listen to that Captain Scarlet episode, it's... Uh, oh, actually, I think it's been taken off YouTube for copyright reasons, which is really frustrating. But uh, there's, a, there's a link to the actual podcast episode in the show notes. Uh, so unless you want to know anything more about Pandia, I think that's everything for Honest Andy's Discount Moon Show. Uh, no, that's great. I will add it to the moon list and I will remember it as the uh, school children's moon. Yeah, that's a nice one. Even though you said, I don't want to have it relate the nicknames to the name of the moon, I think that's the only thing you need to do here. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> the Cornish school kids moon. Just like how Rick had a Prime Moonister's question there for me, if you guys have any questions you want to know about moons, please send me a message on Twitter or send me an email at Iamalunatic at gmail.com. And if you like the podcast, please leave us a review. Apparently that helps the podcast gets better or rate it subscribe to it on all of your various streaming services i know that there have been some reviews on the iStore which is very very sweet of those who left them so if you want to help boost the podcast please leave a review because that really really helps us get seen and reach a wider audience thank you for listening and catch you next time Honest Andy's Discount Moon Show! Do you want to say goodbye or leave it uh, at that? No, it's sort of nicer if you do it, I think.